Hey, 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 Martin. Hey, Christina. Do you have any idea what a booba looks like? <laughs> I feel like this is probably less uh, dirty than you're making it sound. Oh, absolutely. One million percent less. <laughs> I should have started with Kiki. Let's let's reverse that. Hey, Martin, do you have any idea what a Kiki looks like? <laughs> I have no idea what a Kiki or a booba is like, <laughs> at all. <laughs> And I'll tell you that you, you told me that we were going to do this episode and I asked around and fully 50% of my friends said, yeah, I totally know what that is. 50% said I've never heard of that. And <laughs> my suspicion is actually that you talked to 50% of my friends and said, say, you know what a Kiki or a Booba <laughs> is and that this is all just like a big prank. And now <laughs> I am actually, I am the study we're talking about today. <laughs> you are being studied. Please sign this consent form. <laughs> Not enough podcast episodes have have IRB involved. <laughs> if you 100% were forced to had to describe what a kiki is <laughs> or what it looked like or what shape it was or what color it was, any any quality of a kiki, what would you say? Uh, well, a kiki is definitely red. Okay. And a booba is A booba is larger than a kiki. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah, that, that, <laughs> I, I I knew I knew that much. Um, what about uh, textures? What texture is a booba? Well, I think I think they're going to be fuzzier than, okay. than kikis. I, I I can only talk about them. I think in relation to one another. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Again, I knew that. Obviously, I knew that. That that that, that much was obvious. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the booba is the larger, fuzzier one. The kiki is obviously red and smaller. Therefore. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what sort of texture does a kiki have? Leathery. Definitely leathery. leathery. Okay. Yep. Like old leather, new leather, soft leather, uh, sticky leather, crackly leather. Yeah. Uh, 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 it's, it's very shiny leather. Shiny leather. Okay. Yep. So smooth as well. Yeah. Yeah. You got it right. That's the podcast. Great. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> you actually know more than I was able to find about the root of Kiki Booba, so we're going to go on a centuries-long, confusing, frustrating journey together <laughs> of okay. why everybody is lying to me about Kiki and Booba. Uh, okay. <laughs> Should we do it? Let's do it. <laughs> Theme song. Okay, so for this episode, oh, should, we, should, we should probably introduce ourselves. Oh, I don't. Nobody needs to know who I am. You can introduce <laughs> yourself. <laughs> Welcome everyone to They Did What to What. This is a podcast where we talk about classic psychology studies with 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 me, Martin, a <laughs> uh, communication scholar and former psychology researcher, and Christina, a psychopharmacology researcher. Uh, so, oh, and Christina, a neuro. Pharmacology researcher. <laughs> As you can tell, we are both trained professionals. We're very professional. And we have many degrees, many professional degrees. Oh my God, so many. It, it seems excessive, really. We should give some of them back. Okay. It's, it's, it's too many. <laughs> Certainly too many to be talking about something that I'm sure is made up, Kiki and Booba. It is made up, yes, Kiki and Booba. So Kiki and Booba is a beautiful, wonderful, delightful... I picked this theme because I wanted to do a delightful podcast. I didn't want to do a uh, sad yeah. podcast about sad things happening to people. So I was like, oh, right. Kiki Booba, so easy, so beautiful, so fun. 
<laughs> and then I spent weeks researching, trying to find the root of this. And it has driven me absolutely up a wall, man. I'm like <laughs> losing my mind about this because nothing is what I thought that it was, which is exciting, but also oh, wow. so frustrating. <laughs> so just describing how um, I went about this, I went to try to find the original Booba and Kiki paper. And I found okay. one paper published by two researchers, and we'll talk about them towards the end of the episode, who are the first people to describe this phenomenon using specifically the terms Kiki and Booba. But okay. they were absolutely not the first to actually look into this phenomenon. So they were influenced by or inspired by a 1900s German psychologist named Wolfgang Kohler, um, and he wrote... Uh, in German, so I could not read the original <laughs> 1900s German. Uh, my family is German, and it's been the biggest gripe in all of my <laughs> research is that so many core concepts, root concepts, are in 18 and 1900s academic German. Yes. Oh, the worst to read. <laughs> How much 1800s academic German have you read? Can I send you papers I want translated? You you could try. I <laughs> Indiana University has declared me competent to do exactly that. Are you kidding uh, I, me? Oh my god! I I, 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 t I took an exam that says yeah you can do that. Um, I, Are you I, kidding I don't, me right now? Yeah that that was my that was my language competency competency exam for my uh, PhD was basically being able to passably read and translate academic German. There are 10 German articles I can think of right off the top of my head <laughs> that I want translated immediately. Like, I want to stop recording and send you these articles. And I would expect okay. them back by tomorrow, for sure. I was, I was going to say, when you say immediately, that's worrisome. Because the competency that I actually have is such that I could probably do it as long as you have a few months. So oh, no, that's... no, 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 no. I've been waiting years and years and years for these translations. Everything okay, that well... I want in life is 1800s academic German. <laughs> so uh, you have been recruited again against your will. Thank you so much. I, did, I already told you that part of the, this proficiency exam was translating 19th century Icelandic law oh that God. was written in German. <laughs> I told you that I, I thought I think we already discussed this, but yeah, nineteenth-century yeah. Icelandic law uh, from from the German. I was I had to translate that to prove my competence. Um, yeah, I'm, it was grim. I'm in the middle of my Icelandic saga phase, so yeah. if you oh, could yeah. send me those translations, I would love to read them. I, I was not I was not allowed to take them with me. They were oh. they were a test, so they had to stay in the testing center. Yeah. All right, let's it's, do some espionage and go get those tests back. <laughs> So, so, um, so read out loud for us the title of this German. Oh, Ooh, I will. Okay. Uh, Ein experimenteller Beitrag zum Problem der psychologischen Grundlagen der Namungebung. Na naming, naming ground? Naming An ground. experimental contribution to the problem of the psychological basis of oh. namings. Basis of naming. <laughs> so that was the um, one of the papers that's seen as the original paper for this idea of the brain's connectedness to how 
we name things and if there's an inherent neuroscientific basis to why things have the names that they have. Right? Wait, what? Wait, what? Like, what? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about does the brain, how much of a role does the brain have in the words that we use and how things are named, like the origin of language. This accidentally is a podcast about the origin of language. This is, this is what, okay. This is a psychological approach to semiotics. Yes. Probably you okay. should have presented this one instead of me because I'm just like <laughs> playing around. Like I don't do anything with naming. I don't do anything with these portions of the brain. I work in much deeper portions of the brain. So I'm like naming, ugh. Who cares? <laughs> but all of these psychologists care. All these German psychologists care. And yeah. Wolfgang Kohler in 1924, he started these studies where he showed people six different drawings and then he had different names and he asked people to connect the name to the oh. drawing and compared oh. how frequently each name went to each drawing. And it's an academic German, so I don't know what the results <laughs> of the experiment were. I don't know. I saw a chart in the paper. Yeah. I can send you the paper. And there was a little yeah. chart that had six things on it. And that's it. That's all the information that I was able to get from this original paper. Okay, I would probably be able to read the chart. <laughs> that's, okay, that's I will say, we will do an appendage if we have to of what yeah. was said in this chart. By, by Wolfgang Kohler. <laughs> yes, by Wolfgang Kohler. But even before Wolfgang Kohler, Charles Darwin had a cousin, a cousin he didn't marry, a different cousin. <laughs> hey, that's a Charles Darwin joke right there. So Charles Darwin had multiple cousins, one cousin he didn't marry. And that cousin had a nature paper, so congratulations to him. And nice. he um, was interested in synesthesia. So people who sure. see colors connected with yeah. certain words or uh, visualize things in certain patterns. Right. And uh, that was, again, seen as a foundational root um, study into this phenomenon of how things get connected to words. And when you're studying a phenomenon like that, you can study the phenomenon through people who experience the phenomenon in a different way. So we have sure. people who don't experience synesthesia and then people who do experience synesthesia. And comparing right. those, you can get an idea of what is going on. And then okay. even before... Charles Darwin's cousin. I really should say his name more. I really should name the man who wrote this, but we'll go through his paper because he wrote in English so we can actually read that paper. Even before that, there was a 1848 French book. Do you have a degree in academic French that you're I, not telling me about? I, I am not expected to understand or be able to read academic French in the least. This is um, horrific even... news. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you have to do? You didn't have to do any language for your PhD. I did PSEO, so I also I was through the College of Biological Sciences, so they didn't have a language expectation in the College yeah, of Liberal yeah. Arts. You have to do language, right? But right. us science people are just too cool for language. Yeah, yeah. We don't care. And, and, and look where that got you. <laughs> yeah. No. So much of my life is missing because I can't read these papers from three hundred years ago. 
Exactly. Uh. Uh, but the French book is by Adore de Cornaz. And I've been doing Duolingo for a few months now, so I'm certainly going to have really good pronunciation for this book. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm so ready. Des abnormités congénitales de lieu et de leur annexe. So that's congenital <laughs> abnormities of the eyes and their appendages. And that and also had discussion of synesthesia that I cannot access because Duolingo does not teach me <laughs> academic French. And then it goes back even before this. There was stuff in the 1700s. Obviously, people have experienced synesthesia as long as there have been names for things. Right. right. Um, but that's just like a brief history of the last 200 years of research into synesthesia and the basis of researching synesthesia is having an understanding of how words came to be and how words are connected with certain things. Right. And and so so are all of these studies about synesthetic naming or are they about synesthesia more generally? They're about synesthesia more generally because synesthesia even up until the 2000s wasn't understood to be a real phenomenon and we'll get oh, really? to that in oh, the wow. second paper in the 2000s paper but everyone thought that people were lying for oh. hundreds upon hundreds of years when they said seven looks red to me or i can taste pickles when someone says my name or things right. like that really yeah so i really really thought that this episode was just going to be i find the original kiki booba paper it's three pages right. long it has a right. graph in it i show you the graph <laughs> and we have a great day we move on yeah. with our lives but it's yeah. actually this massive, massive field of neuroscientific linguistic study spanning hundreds to thousands of years about the <laughs> origin of language and speech. And once I realized that, I was just like, fuck, like, what do I do? <laughs> I'm in too deep. I shouldn't be here. I'm not supposed to be here. I want my mom to pick me up and take me home. I don't want to be here. But uh, the Darwin cousin, I re Galton, his name is Galton. Oh, I'm it was stop. Galton. It was okay. Galton. I was going to ask about that because I know about him because he was like a, he was at the foundation of race science, I believe. So he wasn't great either. But um, <gasps> I did not know that. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty okay, sure. Okay, <laughs> so I take back any nice thing I've said about Galton, unless there's multiple Galtons. Um, he did other things. Yeah. It, 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 it was it was mostly people, if I remember correctly, misappropriating his work. Okay. But yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. 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 He, yeah. He was he was eugenicist. I think. Yeah. Oh God. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, this he, is he's, so he's, awful. Every single like new thing that comes with Kiki and Booba is just the worst <laughs> news that I have that day. It has driven me bonkers. It's driven me so wild. So this oh, podcast well, can taste work from a eugenicist. Um, not That's a great. eugenicist. The quote unquote father of eugenics. What great. Wonderful, Martin. That's really great. That's really good news that you're giving me. I'm so excited about that. I take back my congratulations for his paper in Nature. We can request that Nature redact his paper for being a eugenicist. Oh, dear. So I didn't know that. I've learned something new today. 
And I feel very fooled by him because the title of his paper is Visualized Numbers, which is a wonderful title. Like if it we're is. ranking titles, that's a great title. That's but now we nice. have to dock points because of the <laughs> eugenics. That's yeah. not a great title anymore. <laughs> but the two papers that we'll be actually talking about and actually reading today are the 1880 Visualized Numbers by Francis Galton, and that was published in Nature. And then 2001, Synesthesia, A Window into Perception, Thought, and Language. And that was by V.S. Ramachandran and E.M. Hubbard. And that was in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Nice. So synesthesia, just in case you don't know, is a condition where a normal person experiences sensations in one modality when a second modality is stimulated. So it's not always stimulated by speech, but a lot of times people think of it in terms of a person hearing speech and then they see something in a different color or they taste something in their mouth or they feel a sensation like they feel cold or they feel warm. Um, and this has been described for many, many, many years, um, but it hasn't been believed. And mm. in 1880, the main point of Galton's paper was he was looking for people to send him correspondences describing their personal synesthesias or their number visualizations. Um, right. So Galton, I'm now thinking of what I read in his paper and the eugenicist is just absolutely <laughs> clicking into place because he emphasized hereditary a lot. He emphasized... Yep. Things passing from grandfather to father to child. Yep. He emphasized sure very special people, <laughs> like people who have um, unique talents and unique gifts. And yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's that, 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 that all adds up. <laughs> he opens his paper by um, talking about how wonderful women are, which was very surprising to me. Oh. Yeah. He said, um, women are usually superior to men in the vividness of their mental imagery and their powers of introspection. So, mm. eh? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if that wasn't coming from a eugenicist, maybe that would mean something. But it, <laughs> I, oh my god, oh my god! And he uh, continues his opening of this discussion. It's like a letter that he wrote to Nature. And he um, opens by sort of trying to describe synesthesia or describe basically um, conjuring something into your mind's eye. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have various abilities to perceive things when they hear words. Um, mm -hmm. So he does an exercise where he just leads people on a thought exercise to visualize right. their breakfast table and describe the qualities of that visualization. So how light is it? Where are the objects? That sort of thing. So they get a right. sense of what um, he's asking for here. I see. And then he goes on to describe many exceptionally intelligent de-identified people and how they visualize numbers in unique ways. Mm. Um, and a lot of it is very math focused. So he describes a lot of people who and multiply numbers very quickly in their head. I know that used to be something before everyone carried calculators <laughs> in their pockets right. everywhere. That was much more of a uh, impressive feat. 
Right. <laughs> than it is today. Um, he also, in his paper, proposes a scientific study in 1880, and he said that he's unable to determine the percentage of people who possess the power to visualize numbers in their brain. And he thought that a good way of understanding this percentage or how many people have this percentage would be to go to a school and get the schoolmasters involved and have the schoolmasters recruit students to consent to this questioning and then question the students about how they visualize numbers and then take that percentage and come up with a percentage of how many people in the world visualize numbers. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so one, uh, ni- nice that there would might be some sort of consent here. Um, yes. Still a little dubious that it's a schoolmaster asking children to do it. I, I think that might not pass muster, but yeah, sure. You know, psychology gets um, gets crapped on a lot for doing studies involving classes of Psych 101 undergrads <laughs> and generalizing to the entire world. Well, they but probably like, got the idea to do that from Galton. He's like, yeah, here's how you yeah. do it. <laughs> it. It's like, it's it's actually a step up from Galton where we're going to go to <laughs> A school, because if anything's representative of the world at large, it's, you know, six to 12 year olds. Um, yes. That's. <laughs> and Galton specifically proposes 100 boys. So certainly you don't even have to convert to a percentage if five boys can visualize. <laughs> If five boys can visualize numbers, then bam, you know that 5% of the population can visualize numbers. He also pats himself on the back by saying, uh, the thing, basically the study, would be affected by a single stroke and both boys and masters would enjoy the satisfactory feeling of having accomplished a substantial piece of scientific research. (laughs) (laughs) The 1880s were amazing. You could talk to a hundred boys and then suddenly you have, you have (laughs) achieved a A substantial substantial piece piece of scientific research. Have you ever accomplished a substantial piece of scientific research? I I have. And I feel like I've really missed my opportunity. I talked to, uh, I talk to a hundred school-aged boys every day. My my, my lecture is a hundred and fifty. Um, so yeah, I I, I and could you be haven't doing... coerced them into a study. I I haven't. I haven't. Oh. It's it it's. I, this is why I haven't done a substantial piece of, of scientific <laughs> research yet. Well, I'll send you this paper so you can use it as your methods section. <laughs> <laughs> and all you have to do is. Uh, get the help of the schoolmasters. Do you have schoolmasters at your <laughs> university? I'll have to find one, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because they they too are, will 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 enjoy this, as I'm told. Yeah, and Galton <laughs> even said that the schoolmasters have an admirable field of psychological research immediately before them, which they wholly neglect. So Galton's like, these schoolmasters... Like yeah, like I'm the schoolmaster here. <laughs> I, I, he's calling me out. Yeah, Galton he's saying you're doing good. You're doing a yeah. good job. You gotta I'm get wasting, better. I'm wasting this opportunity to do all this 100 research. 100 boys. I just love the simplicity of the math. You don't have to convert anything, right? Well, and, and, but which seems like a waste as well, because 
again, if he finds synesthetes, they would be able to do the math more capably anyway. It wouldn't matter how mm. many. They, they, they could divide by 73 if they needed to. <laughs> so uh, uh, my point is, I think he doesn't, he think, I think he's underselling the possibility of finding synesthetes to do the math for him. Mm-hmm. And to be as precise as possible, because we're trying to be precise, he doesn't say that they have synesthesia. I don't even believe ah, that the term synesthesia was right. around yet. He right. called them people who could visualize numbers. So he Good wasn't point. even talking about yeah. shapes. He wasn't talking about colors. Mm. He was specifically talking about numbers. But I um, took some caps of the... He requested that people draw how they see numbers and send them, send him the letters. So up here, um, do you want to describe what you're looking at? Um, so we've got this figure and it's, it's this strange arc shape that it's like a, it's a loopy series of waves that form this big arc that have kind of a hook over on the right side. And so, oh, and along it, we have a number of points and we start jumping by 10. This is, I don't know what to make of this figure. What is happening here? What so, is this? <laughs> this figure was drawn and sent into him. And this is one of the examples of how a person visualizes numbers. And they, it's not voluntary. It's not something that they decided this is where numbers what? are. When they what? learned numbers, this is how numbers appeared to them. So the numbers have like a relative placement in space to each other oh. and they're not evenly spaced there's some no. jumps some numbers go up in space some numbers go down in space some numbers loop around in space i That's see also so, so the number the number what is that at the at the peak there this figure Let's is very small zoom in. it's small and also this is um one of the old old journals where it's not typed right so i think it starts at the peak here is the number 50. One. Yeah. Yeah. So 1 through 12 yeah. are like a loop on the right-hand side. And then yep. the numbers increase as you go from right to left. And 50 is the peak of the roof, basically. Yeah, and then they kind of slope down to 100. Then there's another loop to get to 112, mm -hmm. which is... And then and then we then they slope down quickly to 130, and I guess there's no numbers greater than 130. <laughs> I think for this one they described the numbers um, increasing in that like swoopy pattern past 130. Uh, um, but some people said that they just don't visualize numbers past a certain point. Um, yeah. There was one description of a child who could do multiplication. Of very large numbers, I think it was like five digit numbers in his head, and um past a certain point, his mind just was blank, so the multiplication oh, wow. of the five numbers, the number just appeared in front of him. It wasn't like a conscious processing of the correct result mm -hmm. um but then beyond there was a certain point at which he could no longer do that, and this one, figure three here. I thought it was very funny because uh, it's basically Star Wars, like the screen, the um, credits, where the numbers oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go away from you in space. So because it was handwritten um, on a letter to Galton, she tried to she tried to portray a 3D concept in 2D. So she has kind right. of columns of numbers sort of parallel to each other. But she yeah. writes to make sure... The numbers aren't as they appear in the diagram, but are beyond the other, stretching away into space. 
They're yeah. about half an inch long of a light gray color on a darker brownish gray background. So this woman fully just visualizes the numbers. Yeah. Like zooming away from her. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my favorite phrase of the paper, the phrase of the podcast award. Um, someone described numbers of different colors, different depths, different intensities, but said that there were woolly lumps at the tens. I would like for you to tell me what does that mean? I don't know. Woolly lumps at the tens. I like that a lot. I, I, I don't know what it means either, but it's one of the best things I've heard today. <laughs> um, and Galton basically spends, he uses this paper as a way to advertise that he's looking for subjects for his research basically so he's writing this letter to nature in 1880 oh cool please um if you know of anyone who experiences this if you experience this please contact me and he's uh very much emphasized the heredity aspect of it which again eugenicists (laughs) cool Um, But he he studied uh, people in families, he studied uh, lineages and found a high likelihood if one person in a family had this ability to visualize numbers that it was more likely that they would have a relative who also had the ability to visualize numbers. And that's held up over time. It is something that we know now that synesthesia is passed on genetically. Um, There is a genetic component to it. So that was a genuine finding that this eugenicist made. (laughs) (laughs) Even a staffed eugenicist is right twice a day. (laughs) And that's the 1880 paper. It's a very short and sweet paper with these beautiful drawings um, of these different formations of how numbers are related to each other. And it's uh, seen as one of the first times that someone talked about this concept. Again, because generally speaking, synesthesia was not believed. It was not believed that people could see numbers in their mind. It's not very prevalent in the population. Even now, studies have been done trying to figure out how many people actually have synesthesia. And the percentage is very widely depending on your sampling design. So so you're saying that subsequent researchers didn't select 100 boys. 100 boys. (laughs) That is is not the standard. It's been a while since I've been, you know, a psychology researcher. I, 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 I don't remember if 100 boys is still the standard for, for research studies. I mean, people are out here publishing ends of like 12. So 100 <laughs> boys is a robust sample in some aspects comparatively. If you ask 100 boys, do you see numbers? That That's a fine would be point. a large sample for some of these studies that are published today. That is a fine point. <laughs> okay, so we're moving on. All right, moving on from, from this eugenicist. <laughs> I'm done with him. I don't want to hear about him anymore. <laughs> um, to the 1929, in 1929, Wolfgang Kohler, he published a textbook named Gestalt. Can you say Gestalt for us just so everyone yeah, can no, hear that's, you? you? You got it right. So Gestalt, do you want to define Gestalt for us? Well, Gestalt psychology, that, that, that was the, the, the folks who were interested in what, like kind of the totality of a figure 
um, and its context as being definitive of the experience of it, kind of. Yes. Like that, that, that was kind of the, their game plan. Yeah, the whole thing that my understanding of Gestalt is that the sum is larger than its parts. So the brain yeah, is larger yeah. than if you understand each little part of the brain, you still don't understand the whole brain. You have to understand. It's much, much a larger concept. So right in this textbook, Gestalt Psychology, I checked this book out from the library. It has not appeared to me. I am raging and <laughs> ranting about it. But thank you, Twitter. Uh, I was Googling, trying to find online copies of this book, and someone on Twitter wanted to write blob fanfic. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the beginning of Kiki and Booba. This is very important. Someone on Twitter wanted to write blob fanfic. So someone responded to them and said, Hey, in 1929, Wolfgang Kohler published a psychology textbook. In the psychology textbook, he had these two shapes and he had two words. One was Takedi <laughs> and one was Maluma. So without okay. cheating, Martin, if you look at these two shapes, will you describe them for us and tell us which one is Takedi and which one is Maluma? Okay. So the, the, the top shape looks like a Venn diagram that is mostly overlapping, except one of the figures in the Venn diagram is an egg. It's not two circles. One is an egg and one is a lima bean. <laughs> so, so, so you have, a, 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 you, have, you have an egg and a lima bean. And we'll say the egg represents um, misusing children in psychology experiments. Oh and, and, and the lima bean uh, studies we talk about on this podcast and they're overlapping <laughs> as a Venn diagram, where it's like half and half, right? Because we don't only talk about studies that miss. Have you ever children. described a shape before? Do you know what shapes? <laughs> do you know what shapes are? And and the other shape looks like a standard five pointed star that whose uh, wizard hat is falling off. Oh my god! What? Okay. So the German <laughs> psychologist Wolfgang Kohler. Oh, and the top one is Maluma and the bottom one is Takati, obviously. Obviously. So obviously. why is that true? Because obviously. Like, because obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the blobby uh you know, Lima being an egg Venn diagram, uh just looks like a Maluma. It's it does it's, look like a Maluma. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, and and the bottom one. Yeah. It, it, look, if there's a if there's a five pointed star that's losing its wizard hat, that's gonna be Takati. <laughs> Like, there's just no two ways about it. You are correct, of course. Yeah. Let me finish my Twitter story. Uh, someone, okay. tweeted, <laughs> someone tweeted a photo of the two pages of the textbook that I needed and nice. said, hey, here's a blob from a 1929 German psychology textbook. Nice. This will help you write your blob fanfic. That so was I amazing. just yanked that picture off the internet, and this is the original... Gibuba. This is Takedi so Maluma. Nice. Oh. It started as Takedi Baluba. He changed the name of it at one point because it was too confusing. Um, <laughs> it started out as Baluma and changed to Maluma, so it didn't sound as much like no or balloon. Oh, so it didn't sound like balloon. Because oh, if it right. sounded like balloon, yeah. then it would look rounder. Yeah. And you might confuse it. Yeah, yeah. With, yeah. Yep. Um, so the pointy shape, the shape that's very sharp, 
very angular is Takedi. And then the rounded shape, the softer shape is Maluma. And there isn't a study in the way that we would consider a study. He didn't describe who he asked this question to. He didn't describe how many people answered in each way. But he said that most people call the rounded shape Maluma and the pointy shape Takedi. So that's the original and then going on from there, we skip forward almost 100 years, and we okay. still have this question of, is synesthesia real? So I thought that Takedi and Baluma, or Buba and Kiki, was mm-hmm. a straightforward study about <laughs> the association of shape and sound. Yeah. But Ramachandran and Hubbard are two modern psychologists. They're probably still out there doing psychology. Published this massive, massive 30-page, super, super dense. It was like a textbook chapter, basically. It's also not a study about <laughs> synesthesia. Okay. And they open that the 2001 paper with these four points about synesthesia. And then we'll get down to Kiki and Buba. So okay. they say in 2001, so not even that long ago, people still had these denials of synesthesia. The first denial mm. is that these people are crazy They want to draw attention to themselves. They want to be special or different. They want to stand out. So they're just making this up. Sure. The second uh, explanation for synesthesia, besides synesthesia being a real phenomenon. (laughs) (laughs) So the second thing is that they're remembering childhood memories where they saw a book that had that word in that color. So they're just remembering that association from their childhood. (laughs) Okay. It's very obviously false, right? Everyone has childhood experiences. (laughs) The third is that they're being metaphorical, that it's not a real, quote-unquote, real experience they're having, but they're speaking with a metaphor about the experience. Okay. And then the fourth is that they are potheads or acid junkies. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right, no, no, right, no, that one I believe. This is like this is like a, a recipe book of how I tell my students how not to do research. <laughs> like you know, um, so I was teaching basically an intro anthropology course, and so they're supposed to observe patterns of behavior in in the people around them, and then write up you know kind of analyses or, or develop some sort of theory that explains why people behave in this way. Why do people? You know, say hello like they do. Whatever. Just basic stuff. And this is like the list of things I tell them not to do. Don't say people just do this because they're crazy or because they're wrong oh or because they're broken. Everyone wants to do that. And and the person you have to tell them is don't do that. Don't say that. They're just doing mm-hmm. it because, because, you know, they saw someone do it when they were a kid. Well, that's not an interesting explanation, you know, or, or, or I, I think they were just high. Like, these are all the wor- <laughs> This is just a laundry list of, like, bad research approaches. So, like, it's amazing that this, is, this was passing muster by researchers going, synesthesia can't be a thing. Clearly, it's just people who are broken or high. Like, that's... <laughs> it's- yes. That's, people are what? crazy, people are high, people are lying. Like, these yeah, are the yeah, options. Yeah, like, this is just bad study design. If this is what you're, uh, how you're throwing out, you know, a phenomena that you're clearly observing. I mean, that's the right. thing. You're, you're, your study is, I've observed these phenomena. How do I explain it? Not how do I dismiss it. Right. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, so, this, this is wild. 
I want to make it very clear that uh, these four phenom- these four explanations for the phenomenon were the opening of the paper by Ramachandran yes. and Hubbard. Yes. Yes. And they don't believe it. They're not advocating for that. No. They're, no. They go through and disprove these. Yeah. But they're saying that in the field of synesthesia research, yes, this is what people say. People say, um, yeah. yeah, crazy drugs, metaphors, lying, memories from childhood, yeah, right? Like yeah, we've got yeah. all of the big psychology uh, factors, here. right? Oh wow, that's yeah. It, up until two thousand one, th- these were acceptable ways to dismiss the existence of a clearly observable phenomenon that had been observed. For centuries, at least. Centuries and centuries and centuries. Yeah. Like throughout the literature, like I said, even before the 1848 French studies of the eye, there were reports and uh, tellings of synesthesia. Yeah. And why do we have to go around being like, everyone besides me is lying (laughs) about everything that they tell me? (laughs) Right. Right. <laughs> the problem is that I everyone except me is truth, stupid. But you are lying to me. <laughs> That's <laughs> that is the most probable explanation. In fact, if I could get away with that, God, that would be <laughs> that would be the best. Do you want to try to write a paper where we just like our conclusion is just everyone except us is lying or crazy? Everyone except us is lying. <laughs> well, I at the end I would put a footnote accusing you of lying during the, <laughs> of the paper. <laughs> but it would just be a little footnote. It wouldn't be in the right, body right. itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's but then fine. you would submit like a supplemental to yeah. the article accusing me of lying, and yeah, then yeah. the conclusion would have to be. Everybody lies. The whole world lies. <laughs> Except that I'm the corresponding author. So when everyone, oh god damn it, yeah, yeah. So if anyone ever <laughs> ever asks us a question, I'll just say it's fine. Christina's the one who's lying. So, oh, trumped by author order. <laughs> as long as I get a star next to my name, I just want stars. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should at some point we should actually talk about stuff like that because I, I I I have a I barely have a grasp on how like. Um, how how to parse a scientific article anymore? It's been enough years. Um, I love nothing more than to yeah over explain to the heavens yeah scientific articles and what different pieces mean. It's become like my secret power. Yeah, you know, I am now a rhetorician, which means that talking about genres of writing is weirdly <laughs> exciting to me. If you want to just talk about like, yeah. Oh my God. Pieces of, of, of articles at some point. I'm totally I have in for it. literally hundreds of printed out articles in my house. How much time do you have to go through the right. formatting? Season two. Oh my God. And the how it's changed over time yeah. is Phenomenal. It's so incredible. The density of information, I'm the very structure, the format, like you can't yeah. change anything. It has to be specifically this way. There's no formal education teaching you how yeah. to put it this way. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And by good, I mean the worst, but yeah. Yeah. it is what it is. It is. Yeah. Okay. You know, like I said, season two. Season two. <laughs> we'll just be that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's people will pay us money to not publish (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we've got this we've got this study, um Ramachandran and Hubbard study, where they are they're saying we can't just dismiss synesthesia for any of these, you know, kind of 
trivial reasons. We need to take it seriously. So right. what, what, what sorts of things do they end up uh, finding about it? They posit their theories. They have these like 13 theories at the beginning of their paper. And they say that from what they've seen, again, this isn't a study where they're showing me numbers and showing me methods mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. It's right. sort of like a book chapter overview of the work that they've done. Right. Which we'll get to. It is so frustrating. Um, <laughs> they say synesthesia runs in families exactly like was reported in 1880 by the goddamn eugenicist. <laughs> <laughs> they say that colorblind people have also reported synesthesia, which is incredibly interesting. The neuroscience underneath that is so, 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 so intriguing. Oh, like color, colorblind people having like co- color-based synesthesia in particular? Yes. or. Yes. Oh. So cool. Interesting. Um, and they yeah. just say that. And then they mention like one test that they did <laughs> with that person where you have like a focal point in the center of your eye and then you have your peripheral vision and those two visions aren't equivalent. So they oh, test wow. for the center of the eye inducing synesthesia versus peripheral vision oh. inducing synesthesia and they get different results from that. So there's something going on there. Wow. Um. They posit that there's a huge heterogeneity in reported synesthesia. So it's not like people are just reporting the same things over and over again. Like right. the woman who reported the numbers floating away from her in space. Yeah, yeah. That would be an N of one. And then you would have an N right. of one of someone who said yeah. that macaroni sounds green. Right, And right. there's just, everybody has a different report and different experience. Yeah. They also have pseudo-lesion studies, so we cannot escape the lesion study. Um, (laughs) Patients with brain damage to specific regions of their brain lose functionality, including the loss of ability to do arithmetic. So the Galton paper specifically mentioned arithmetic and visualizing numbers or being able to understand metaphors or being able to even produce words. They become anomic. Um, so having damage to those very particular reason re- regions yeah. causes these very um, known deficits. Mm. So they're positing that there's a neuroscientific basis and location in the brain oh. that could be a center of synesthesia. Wow. They posit that all human language has metaphors, and the metaphors that they picked in the paper were loud shirt and mm-hmm. hot babe. So babes are <laughs> literally hot. The babes do not have hot temperatures. Those are inflamed babes, which are different <laughs> than hot babes. I didn't write this. They fucking wrote this. Pick a different metaphor, my God. <laughs> Um, Uh, they say synesthesia is more common among artists poets novelists creative people which is another thing that galton reported that uh uh, very imaginative people have synesthesia and that patients with temporal lobe epilepsy have also high amounts of synesthesia so those were their like posits of synesthesia is real yeah it varies a lot and there's a neuroscientific basis for the experience of synesthesia. Awesome. Awesome. So if, we, if we're doing um, uh, old psychology study, bingo, we've got the lesion studies. 
We've yes. got the weird sexualizing slash misogyny. <laughs> yes. But what we're missing here is any extensive testing on handedness. There was no handedness. There was no handedness. Interesting. Yeah. So we, yeah. we can yeah. write we, them a letter a long way. and say, can you go back? <laughs> can you go back and test for handedness in these uh, syn- synesthesians? Yeah. That's quite the word. <laughs> All right. And um, Ram and Hubbard were trying to speculate or trying to put together a theory about the origin of all language, right? So they're not talking about this wow. little one site in the brain. They're not talking about yeah. this lesion being this thing. They're trying to examine how did language develop? How did language even come to be? Right. And what they're talking about is these cross-modal correspondences. So again, if you hear a word and see a color or hear a word and see a shape, they're saying that some of these cross-modal correspondences might have been used so that the earliest humans who had no language could induce those shapes or those feelings or those visuals in each other's brains by making that sound so that they would be more likely to be understood by someone else before language existed. Okay. That's a bold assertion. That is <laughs> So I think yeah. So 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 on the strength of a theory that is rooted in 100 boys they have proposed to, <laughs> and not a, they're, they're not basing it on that study. They're doing a meta-analysis no. of a body of research that descends from 100 boys. Uh, <laughs> oh they, they, they have decided that they have some insights about the formation of all human language. Is that, is that, is that what you're proposing to me? <laughs> so let me defend them a little bit. They are genuine, <laughs> they're genuine neuroscientists who have PhDs who have done neuroscience research for decades and decades and decades before they even started researching <laughs> synesthesia. Okay. Uh, Ramachandran in particular, he had a large body of work with phantom limb pain. Oh, Are interesting. you familiar with phantom limb yeah, pain? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, interesting. So pe- people who say, or, or who do, I, by all accounts, I guess, experience uh, sensations in limbs that have been amputated? Exactly. Yeah. And he, um, he de- started developing therapies based on synesthesia using... Oh. Uh, model arms so he would visually stimulate a model arm Mm -hmm. in order to have an effect in the mind of the person who had phantom limb pain oh wow okay very cool and i don't know if you've seen that like circus trick where they put a um a model arm in front of you and you put your arm behind a wall have you seen that oh yeah 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 and then they like do things to the arm and you feel it yeah exactly yeah so yeah. that was the beginning of um some of ramachandran's work in this area was he was a carny um, that yeah he, <laughs> he he was a carny he was alive in the 1800s he's very very old he's very old <laughs> But he was using that as a legitimate therapy to yeah. um, provide relief to people who had amputations, which right. is wonderful. So that was his background. 
And he was working with that cross modality of visual stimulus of an arm that is in no way connected to a person to provide a real neurological cascade in that person's brain. And this works. We know that it works. It's a very classic psychology um, demonstration that I've seen done in a lot of like intro classes and stuff like that. Right. So they're real people that are really studying this. And I think that this has more legitimacy than you are ascribing <laughs> to it. it I, I, I'm sure that it does. It's, it's just that, that anytime someone's making the claim that we have discovered the origins of human language, that's, that's, that's a really bold claim. And you'd want to see at least some data, I would say. <laughs> I also want to see data. So I was so excited because I was like, I've been going through hundreds of years, hundreds of years of research. And here I am. I yeah. saved this paper to be the last paper that I read. So I would have the basis of those other papers. Sure. Yeah. Of and course. I was like, I'm so excited for the graph. I'm so excited for <laughs> the hundreds and hundreds of boys who pick <laughs> Kiki to be the shape and Booba to be the shape. We are arriving at Kiki and Booba. And guess what, Martin? What do those hundreds and hundreds of boys tell us? It's not, they're not in there. It's not in there. What? This paper is 31 pages long. It is single spaced. Yeah. It is so dense. Yeah. It has so many concepts in it. And every single person in the world cites this 2001 paper as the origin of Kiki and Booba. And everyone says 95% of people pick Kiki to be the spiky shape and 5% of people pick Kiki to be the round shape. So you have 95% of people selecting the correct shape yes. <laughs> for the names and 5% wrong. And I was like, I'm so excited to see this 95%, 5%. Yeah. Some people say 98% wow. select the correct name for yeah. the shape. And it's just, it's just not in this paper. It's not in here. <laughs> so I can read the entirety. It's just a few sentences of the discussion of Kiki and Booba yeah. in the 2001 paper. They say... First, consider stimuli shown in figure seven. And Martin previously described the wizard losing his hat as Kiki or the lima bean on top of the The egg. What was it? Yeah, the lima bean on top of the egg for Booba. Yeah. Um, So that's what figure seven is. Originally developed by Kohler, the German, further explored by Werner. And if you show these two shapes to people and say, in a Martian language, one of these two figures is Booba and the other is Kiki. <laughs> Try to guess which. 95% of people pick the left, the spiky shape as Kiki, and the right as Booba, even though they have never seen these stimuli before. Amazing. The reason is that the sharp changes in visual direction of the lines on the right-hand figure mimic the sharp phen- phenomic inflictions of the sound Kiki, as well as the sharp inflection of the tongue on the palate. The Booba Kiki effect example provides our first vital clue for understanding the origins of proto language, for it suggests that there may be natural constraints on the way in which sounds are mapped onto objects. And that's it. That's all of Kiki and Booba. That's all we get. <laughs> so so we, we, we have we have data without source. But ninety five percent, sure, I'm willing to buy that. You buy it. I want. I want to see the dots. I want to see the dots. I would like to see them too. But but let's just say that I believe. Okay, we believe them. We believe them. The leap from there to 
this mimics the sharp phonemic inflections from the sound kiki is like 75 miles wide. That is quite a leap. <laughs> um, and then the next leap is maybe even larger. Provides the first vital clue for understanding the origins of proto-language. Like, how did we get there? They, they don't say that this is all of the vital clues for proto-language. They say this is the first vital clue for proto-language. Sure, there are many but, vital clues for proto-language. But, but even that, like, how do they support that? You can't just say that. What, we've got... <laughs> well, they said that. They said it, and it was published. It's true. It's real, and it's true. Again, I, I, it's been a long time since I've, I've, I've been in the 100 boys to represent all of humanity <laughs> game. But, um, <laughs> but, but what I oh, do do... Oh, what was interesting. Okay, so all of the Popsic articles and everything outside of this original source yeah. states that Ramachandran performed this test on... Mm. Um, students in UCSD. Yes. And Ramachandran himself is from the Tamil Nadu region in India where they speak Tamil. Okay. And both of those locations had exactly the same results. Okay. And as you can imagine, there's been 100,000 variations on this where they give this Kiki Buba test to babies. They yeah. give it to every different language, to different ages. Yeah. They see the um, consistency across time. And it has come out over and over and over and over and over again uh -huh. that everyone says Kiki is the spiky shape and Booba is the round shape. Sure. Everybody says that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So language, speaking English is not a requirement of mapping <laughs> the sound onto the correct shape. Sure. Um, <laughs> it's just... I'm, I'll approach this just from an argumentation standpoint, because that, that, <laughs> that, that, that is the thing I'm allegedly even more qualified to do than translate 19th century German to English. Um, <laughs> we, we have evidence, this 95%. We can assume that evidence is correct. We then have conclusions drawn from that evidence. But what we're missing is the reasoning that goes between them. 95% of people pick the thing. And, and then we have the second piece of evidence that... There are sharp changes in visual direction around the lines of, of, of phonemic inflection. That might also be true, but we don't necessarily have a connection between those two facts. Like, we're, we're missing the reasoning that connects those two facts, particularly in a causal way. Just, again, at the level of argumentation, that is a huge leap. And I want to know, I, what I want is 100 pages between those two sentences. <laughs> that's, what it, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is bad work. I'm saying I want 100 pages written between those two sentences. And then between that sentence and the next one, that this is the origins of proto-language. That's a claim that I don't understand how that's connected to 95% of people saying that the blob is, is booba. Um, again, this is, not to, this is not to say that they did bad work. I'm just saying that they need to write more. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair to them, they did write 31 pages. Okay. And they did go through a lot of neuroscience, a lot of testing, a lot okay. of um, psychomet okay. psychometric testing okay. that I'm not covering here because my singular focus, my horse yes. blinder focus, yes. Yes. was on Kiki and Booba. Good. Okay. And my heart sunk out of my body to the floor <laughs> across the Atlantic Ocean when I saw that there was no, no methodology, there yeah. was no study, there was no yeah. graphs, there was no nothing, 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 nothing. So then what I did is I thought, oh, I'm certainly missing 
the paper yes. that they did yes. that they're referencing in this 31-page paper. Yes. So I went to papers that talk about the Kiki Buba effect and I looked at their introductory references. Yes. And every single paper that references Kiki Buba references this 2001 wow. paper. Yeah. I searched in PubMed for papers published by Ramachandran and Hubbard together. Yeah. And this is the first paper that they published together. <laughs> Every article that talks about Kiki and Buba leads back to and cites this 2001 article that has no data in it. Ju- it's just words. It's just words. They just say 95%. Did they poll 20 people <laughs> and one person picked the wrong shape or did they poll yeah. 4 million people like how many people are we talking yeah. about here yeah yeah that's I, so so even my even the thing i was giving them credit for let's just assume that 95 is correct even that can't be verified here <laughs> not from this paper no right. they just say it it's basically like a textbook chapter. It's like a yeah. communication no, of course. chapter. Of course. Yeah, yeah, which is which is fine for for what it is. But yeah, you would hope there would be there would be the paper with the methodology and the raw data right. and some yeah. some some tables. I like tables, some charts, some figures. I love charts and tables. Oh, figures. So I learned about Kiki and Buba in my introductory psychology class. Sure. And they showed us the shapes and they said, which one's Kiki, which one's Booba? Yeah. Everyone picked Kiki, yeah. Spiky, Booba, Round. Yeah. Okay, next slide, right? Like yeah. there was no mm-hmm. discussion of <laughs> why were they studying this? What was the meaning of That's this? Amazing. What's the underlying background? That's What's amazing. synesthesia? Yeah. They didn't even talk about proto language. They didn't talk about how Kiki <laughs> Booba proves the origin of language and how language evolved. It just said, Spiky is Kiki, round is Booba. And I wanted so bad to have an article talking about right. this whole process. Yeah. And how it was decided and how it was picked. Yeah. And there's like these few sentences that I read out loud and that's it. That's amazing. And it's so confusing to me. I don't understand how this concept that is figure seven in that <laughs> 2001 paper... They have so many more figures. They have a whole bunch of like numbers in certain colors and yeah. the numbers in other colors that they show to people right. who have synesthesia to induce synesthesia, right? Right. Like there's so much synesthesia testing, so much uh, metaphor testing, that yeah. sort of thing. Kiki and Booba is this tiny, tiny, tiny piece of this. Right. I don't have any understanding <laughs> of how it escaped this communications to a niche journal That's amazing. in 2001 and is known by Fifty percent of your friends. Yeah, yeah. Every single one of my friends. I only know cool people. <laughs> I have a I have a larger N here. <laughs> oh, are you saying I have no friends? That's so rude. <laughs> That's the science way of saying it. The N of my friends is bigger than the N of your friends. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my god. But yes, like I truly at this point have spent so much time researching this and I have no idea how this became one of those core psychological concepts that is taught to people over and over and over and over and over again. Despite having no, no, no identifiable origin point, I guess. Right. Like the origin point, the actual origin point goes back to the Germans in 1924 Germans. But the origin point everyone points to actually isn't. 
It's just this 2001 right, paper that presumes that a bunch of stuff is true. Yeah, it's a null pointer. Is y- that true? Yeah. Am I saying computer science right? It's a null pointer. There's just nothing. Uh, yeah, that's nothing amazing. Nothing at the pointer. Yeah. And every if you Google Kiki Booba, every single pop science article has exactly the same opening paragraph okay. where they say Kiki and Booba is a phenomenon where 95% of people say that Kiki is the spiky shape and Booba is the round shape. Right. And that's it. There's nothing else there. There's no depth. There's no production. <laughs> there's no idea. It's just this thing that everybody knows. So where's the data? Oh, and some articles that cite it say the 98% yeah. get the shape names correct. Oh. And some say 95%. <laughs> In the article, it says 95%. But what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I I actually feel I'm feeling better and better about Galton now. Oh God! At least he, at least <laughs> at least the, the mad eugenicist told us there were a hundred boys. At least we knew we need a reasonable <laughs> end in order to draw our conclusions. Exactly, and he told us what it was. It's one hundred. Didn't you mention he told us that they were all racially pure and? Um, oh my God! <laughs> was that was that in, that in there, or am I just attributing that to him after the fact? Uh, I, I, I will not say. I will not speak for Galton. He can he can write his own nonsense. I want no part of that. Oh jeez. Okay, here's the point where I interrogate your memory. Yes. Have you genuinely never in your entire history of learning psychology heard of this phenomenon? I don't think I heard about Kiki and Booba. I, I do distinctly remember the first time I took Intro to Psychology. Uh, this is the part where I admit that uh, despite now having a PhD, I was a terrible undergrad. And one of, at least one of the times I failed out, I was a psychology major. And so I took, I took a psychology class my first year. And I remember this discussion about synesthesia. And it's entirely possible that it was rooted in Kiki and Booba. But I was not a good student. So it's entirely possible I just didn't read it um, or I wasn't paying attention. But there was a discussion about synesthesia right at the beginning. So I, I can't say that it didn't show up, but I can say that I don't remember it. Were you crazy or were you on LSD? Or were you, <laughs> were you um, using metaphors at the time? I was, <laughs> I was out of my mind on metaphor at the time. <laughs> The the similes were just flying around, man. You could say that my brain was an egg that got cracked over a pan. That's oh that's how on metaphors I was. Did, do you remember that commercial? Yep, that you're, a young, you're a little younger yep. than me. Okay. All right. I'm much younger than you, and I have many more friends because of how young I am. I'm just taking personal offense to, to being told that I have no friends. In, in science language, what is that? I was not prepared to be attacked in that way. Also, when I was growing up, we were always told that scientists got to live in an underground laboratory by themselves and nobody bothered them or talked to them ever. And then I became a scientist that does research and oh, people talk to me yeah. all fucking day. And I'm all like, what if you stop talking all to me? All the time. What if nobody talked yeah. to me? That would be so wonderful. I feel like I was lying. Oh, to yeah. Me. My experience working in a laboratory was someone stopping me and talking to me about the band Cheap Trick constantly. (laughs) What shape is the band Cheap Trick? (laughs) 
Can you describe to me the shape of the band cheap chick? It's the shape of annoyance that I want to go back to coding, please. <laughs> that um that proves that cheap trick is the proto music that they are the origin, the origin of all music. The origin of all music. <laughs> I can't even think of what song Cheap Trick is most known for. What did they sing? I, I don't even remember. I, I'll tell you this. When my coworker came up and asked me, are you going to the Cheap Trick show tonight? Uh, I, when, I, when I worked in the lab, I laughed because I assumed it was a joke. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> it turns out it wasn't a joke, and we were never friends after that. So, Oh, no. So, so, so my friend. So you don't have friends uh, yeah. is what you're saying. N equals N minus one. <laughs> Oh, I want you to want me. I want you to want me. Yeah, yeah, that's, they, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's a fine song. I want you to friend me. <laughs> yep, science. Very few isolated labs. Lots of people just asking you about bands that you think are jokes. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, are you ready for our definitely legitimate pop culture reference of the day? <laughs> if only we had a theme song for that. It's TikTok, the totally legitimate pop culture reference of the day. It's TikTok. So I don't have a TikTok, but I have a friend. I have a real friend I, in real life. I thought you said you were young. Now this is all <laughs> falling apart. You don't have a TikTok. And now I don't even believe you have this friend. This is I have one friend. <laughs> and of one. I have exactly one friend. My friend has TikTok. And she accumulates... TikTok videos that she thinks that I will appreciate. And then she sits me down and she shows me the TikTok videos that I will appreciate. Terrific. And recently she showed me a TikTok video that has apparently gone super mega viral. Yeah. There were even articles, Kiki Booba articles written about this TikTok video. Okay. Where a woman on TikTok talked about Kiki Booba and she described how her entire life she has categorized some men as kikis and some as boobas. And she's sure. only attracted to booba men and she's uh, not attracted to kiki men. Right. So I don't know all these people, but the list of kiki men included Zac Efron, mm. Robert Pattinson, oh, yeah. and Austin Butler. Okay. I, I, I'm dubious about the Zac Efron, but yeah, yeah. The other two. What does that mean? You don't think Zac Efron is a kiki? I don't think he is iconically kiki. Robert Pattinson okay. is, for sure. <laughs> Why would you place Robert Pattinson as a kiki? Well, it has to do with the uh, phonemic placement of um, the proto-language of all humans. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. The same reason, the same reason that 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 five pointed star that lost its wizard hat was was a kiki. Um, it's it, mm -hmm. it, it it just it it's just apparent. It just makes it just sense. Is. Yeah, yeah. Zach Efron, I feel I feel a little less certain of. He's not a booba though. There's no way he's a booba. Yeah, he, he's, he's got a mysterious third. Well, he's got to be a kiki because he's not a booba. So then, yeah, that's fine. I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. And then the boobas for boobas, she listed Oscar Isaac. Michael B. Jordan and Jason Siegel, and she's attracted to boobas. So these are the good 
attractive oh, men. Oh, see, see, once again, Oscar Isaac. I would. I, I'm dubious. I, I mean, he can't be a kiki, but he's not iconically a booba. That's. I don't even know who Oscar Isaac is. Oh. Who's Oscar Isaac? L- look him up. He's he's delightful. Oh, he's delightful. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. So are boobas delightful and kikis are kind of annoying, or what's? No, the... no, no, no. These are all delightful men. I, I think. Oh, they're all delightful. Yeah, who who doesn't want to look at Oscar Isaac or Robert Pattinson? If you were to add a person as a kiki and a person as a booba, who would you place as a kiki? Oh, damn. Um, okay, let's not think about it too hard. I think that's probably the key. Um, yeah, it's got to be really fast. Yeah. Weirdly, I'm getting Tony Danza as a kiki and then booba is other. I'm getting Charlie Day. Charlie Day. Of course he's a booba. Yeah. Of course. There's no other option. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Charlie Day and whoever plays Dennis is a key. Yeah. Oh, sure. obviously. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And Charlie Day is a booba. Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. Okay. We figured it out. Yeah. It all makes sense. The totally legitimate pop culture <laughs> of the day is very legitimate. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's definitely legitimate. Yeah. <laughs> and on TikTok, apparently now people are making videos classifying everything as either kiki or booba sure so my favorite was werewolves are booba and vampires are kiki Mm. and i agree with this wholeheartedly 100 million percent no i would agree with that well and obviously the blob is a booba we've we've already established that scientifically from 1923 (laughs) um mummies probably too i wonder are, are vampires unique in their kikiness as monsters? I think so. Like, what other monsters yeah, would be? Like, Swamp Thing would be a booba. Godzilla yeah, for no, sure obviously. would be a booba. Right? A million percent. Yeah. 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 I wonder if there are any other kiki, kiki monsters. monsters. Oh, um, it's not a monster, but the Pool mind virus is like a concept monster. Yeah, right? viruses. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, virus. Yeah, I, w- I would imagine that things like bacteria are probably much more booba. Yeah, bacteria is a booba. Virus is a kiki. Yeah, yeah. We figured out infectious disease. They've been treating boobas as if they're kiki. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where uh, treatment-resistant diseases come from. from yeah, no, th- th- that honestly might get people to stop prescribing or taking antibiotics for viral infections. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe this is the language You're trying to take need. an anti-kiki for your booba. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that legitimately might help because evidently nothing else is stopping it. <laughs> and that's it. That's all I've got. Okay, well, this is not a study I had I had any recollection of, but we must have talked about it. It must have been... Just that I was, yeah, not paying attention because we definitely had synesthesia week. And fully 50% of my 25 people I asked um, said... You asked 25 people and not a single one of them spoiled it for you? Yeah, no, I I, I told them up front, don't spoil it for me. Just tell me if you've heard of it or not. Yeah, yeah, yep. And all of them were good sports. Well, congratulations on having non-spoiler friends. Yeah, yeah. Yep, it's not about the quantity, it's about the quality. (laughs) (laughs) Quality friends. (laughs) I feel so frustrated because I feel like I didn't actually learn anything. I feel like the study is a fake study. I feel like I have no understanding of why everybody knows about this or talks about this. I don't know how it made it to TikTok. Like, I feel like there has to be some reason they yeah. make it to TikTok. Right? <laughs> like, there's got to be a marketing department behind it. Who is the marketing department for Kiki Booba? 
Well, that, that, a good marketing department would actually explain all of this. How do they get away with, how do you get away with writing a, a paper, a 30 page article where you mention mm-hmm. this Kiki Booba, but you become the definitive uh, reference point despite citing no data? My point is, I think the marketing department is the marketing department of Ramachandran and Hubbard. I, th- <laughs> I, I think they're actually a PR firm. I don't think they are researchers. You say that. No, are. it's really, yeah. No, they're real guys. And it's really interesting because if all of the other papers that talk about synesthesia and talk about the Kibibuba effect are to be believed, yeah. then Ramachandran and Hubbard are like, the guys, they're <laughs> it. This is such a big thing for them. But if you, Ramachandran himself has a Wikipedia page yeah. and it doesn't even say Kiki and Booba on his Wikipedia page because he's done so much other shit. Amazing. His page is really, really long. Yeah. With no mention of this whatsoever. That's amazing. And I had not heard of him except for everyone saying Ramachandran Kiki Booba. That's like, amazing. That's it's such a mystery. I don't understand. I don't I feel like I know a million times less than <laughs> I did before we started. What's that phenomenon called where the more you learn about it, the more of an expert you are, the less you Claim to understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah, the opposite side of the Dunning-Kruger effect yeah. of now I know more, therefore yeah. I know yeah. nothing. We sh- I understand nothing. We should we should totally actually look at that study. I've heard, I've heard that one is pretty dubious as well. Yeah, let's do it. We can do that one. Let's just do dubious studies that are frustrating. Yeah. And make us angry. <laughs> make us angry. <laughs> Uh, amazing all right well that's all we all we've got for for kiki booba that's that's it unless you want to talk about the variations of spiky shapes versus lima bean (laughs) shapes for another half hour or so i will talk about that for as long as you'd like (laughs) (laughs) awesome all right well uh that's it then so so All right, all right. They make me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm not even talking into my microphone. We have to start over. Okay. Okay. Now I have the microphone back. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Martin. Yeah. I'm sick of reading old papers. Yeah. I don't want to read old papers. You're you're, you're done with it? I thought the whole point of this was that you were going to read old papers. They make me feel dumber. (laughs) The more I learn from these old papers, learning more makes you feel dumber. The dumber I feel. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wonder if there's a psychological phenomenon that would tell us something about that. <laughs> Martin, is there a psychological phenomenon that would explain that the more you learn, the less you feel you know about anything? <laughs> given that we j- is there a name? <laughs> given that we did just talk about that in, in the episode, yeah, yeah, I think that's the Dunning Kruger effect. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was on LSD at the time. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. You're being such a kiki right now. <laughs> um, now, here's the thing, though. I've never read any kind of primary source about the Dunning Kruger effect. I've only heard it referred to in the third person or third person. That's what that's what you call papers that you haven't read. Third person, um, I, uh, secondary sources, we call them. <laughs> I've only heard it talked about in secondary sources. And I think it might be fun to figure out what this Dunning-Kruger effect is and what what papers were actually written about it. So 
What if we do that? Do you that? think they surveyed 100 boys? <laughs> I hope so. I hope they they followed the proud eugenicist tradition of having <laughs> 100 <laughs> boys as their sample. Uh, <laughs> if And if they did, I guess we'll find out about it next week. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that. I kind of am too. Next week. Next week. <laughs> 